Well, I'm glad y'all are here. We're ready to chase lines today. Before we get started, though, I want to say a prayer. Uh, I, I think y'all just y'all pray with me. Lord, uh, in light of what's going on this week in Florida, Lord, our hearts are, are just broken for that tragedy. Lord, the, the loss of life was just absurd. Lord, I pray that we would um, see and notice and recognize uh, and realize that, that there is a battle going on and that it's a spiritual battle. Lord, I pray that we would keep our hearts and our minds and our eyes always focused on you because you can fix every bit of that. Lord, we lift those families uh, that lost loved ones up to you, the, the, the folks that were injured. Lord, I pray that there would just be a, a, a time that you would show yourself in the midst of all of that tragedy. Lord, we just pray that you'll, and we trust and we believe that you're going to take and do something out of that, that you're going to show yourself, that you're going to shine. Lord, we just lift those families up to you in Jesus' name. Um, this morning, uh, you saw that video. There was a line that was said that, that he said in the very beginning of that. He said, quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. I'm Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at my church. And we're in week six of a series that we're calling uh, Running with the Giants. Sort of the Hebrews chapter 12, the hall of heroes, the, the hall of faith. These are biblical giants that we're talking about, mostly all, mostly from the, from the Old Testament. And, and, and I want to have a conversation with you this morning about, uh, about a guy that I don't imagine anybody's ever heard of. Uh, there's an obscure passage in the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. And, it's in chapter 23. You probably never read this passage. Um, you know, you got to understand there's, there's books in the Scripture. There's, there's history books. There's uh, prophetic books. And there's, there's poetry and there's wisdom literature. And if you look back in the Old Testament in Judges and Joshua and First and Second Samuel, uh, Chronicles and Kings, First and Second Kings, those are history books. And this is a part of Second Samuel that it kind of lists the David's, King David's, a gallery of heroes. It was men that were, they were distinguished for acts of valor, Indiana Jones sort of stuff, deeds of service to God, deeds of service to Israel, and they made up these guys, and they made up King David's elite troops. So you've got in your worship guide, you've got uh, some stuff in the back of it, you've got a couple of passages. This first passage is Second Samuel 23, 20 and 21. I want to read that to you. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and he killed him with his own spear. Now I want you to think about this dude, Benaiah. The Bible doesn't tell us what he was doing. It doesn't tell us where he was going when he came across this lion. It doesn't tell us the time of day. It doesn't tell us his frame of mind. It just tells us that he jumped in with the lion and he came out and the lion didn't. Normal folks like me and you, we run away from lions. But lion chasers, they're 
that God's wired them up differently. I want you to, I want you to imagine the scene. Benaiah is probably tracking this beast. And we don't know how far apart they are, but at some point, they probably lock eyes. Most of the, the man versus lion encounters, they end the same way. The man runs, the lion chases, the lion catches, and the lion eats the man. But not this time. Improbably and for whatever reason, the lion runs and he slips into this pit. And I'm sure that he landed on his feet because he's a cat and they're just creepy creatures and they just land. It doesn't matter. They just land on their feet. Then what does Benaiah do? I think what would I do, I would get on my knees and I thank God that the lion fell in the pit because they run 35, 40 miles an hour. I'd head back to my cabin, get in front of the fireplace, get a cup of coffee and read a book. But not, that's not what lion chasers do. Not Benaiah. He gets a running start and he takes a huge leap of faith. There's two sets of prints that are heading up to that pit. One set of footprints and one set of paw prints. But at the end of the day, there's only one set of footprints that are leading away from it. It's got to be probably the most improbable victory that is recorded in the, in, the, in the pages of this book. And so first, I want to give you a couple of things that I believe just right down to my very core. And number one is God is in the business of strategically positioning us in the right place at the right time. He's really good at getting us where he wants us to go. And I know as a Christ follower, my sense of destiny is it's like my birthright. Sometimes, though, the, the right place feels like the wrong place and the right time feels like the wrong time. Typically, you run into a line, that's going to signify the wrong place and the wrong time, a really, really bad day. Typically, you would think that it would signify the day of your death. For me and you, that may be true, but for line chasers, it's not. Not for, for men like Benaiah. Remember, there's one set of footprints that are leading away from that pit. And if we look a, a verse or two later in, uh, in verse 23 in chapter 20 of, of 2 Samuel, here's what it says, what the text says. Remember, he jumps in the pit. Two verses later it says this, And David set King David, and David set him over his bodyguard. So I want you to picture David, King David. He's in his office. Oval Office, he's sitting there, he's got his desk out, and he's got all these resumes on his desk. And he's thumbing through these resumes. And this dude went to the Jerusalem Military Academy, and he graduated summa cum laude. And, and this dude over here has got a master's degree. And this guy has got two different doctor degrees from Hebrew University. And then he comes across this, this Benaiah, Benaiah's resume. And, it, and this is the guy, it says on the resume, he jumped in a pit with a lion on a snowy day on purpose and he killed the lion. I'm thinking he's getting the job, not the guys that graduated Kuma Sum Log. So if we zoom out a, a little bit and we look at a, take kind of a big picture, again, for most of us, for me and you, as we come tooth to tooth with a lion in a pit on a snowy day, snowy day that would constitute some horrifically bad luck. But can you see, at least begin to see, how God turned what really was a bad break, could have been a really bad break, into a really big
big break because uh, Benaiah lands a job interview with the king of Israel. So here's principle number one. This is in your worship guide. Uh, God always, always uses past experiences to prepare us for future opportunities. He always uses the stuff in our past, good, bad, or indifferent, past experiences to prepare us for future opportunities. And it happens all the time. If we, as we look back on our lives, that the, the greatest opportunities that we have are totally the scariest lions. The biggest risks that come along end up being the most awesome opportunities. Sometimes there's regrets. And there's two types of regrets that kind of befall us. Regrets of action and regrets of inaction. Wishing you hadn't done something and then wishing that you had done something. Theologically, one is a sin of commission and one is a sin of omission. And churches have just fixated on sins of commission way too much. There's this laundry list of don't do this and don't do that and don't do this. It's a mile long. Somehow we think or maybe even mama or daddy told us that holiness is a, is a byproduct of removing something from our lives that shouldn't be there. And I'm not saying that we don't need, there are some things that we need to remove from our lives. But somehow we're taught that holiness is a byproduct of doing that, of removing something from our lives. But I think sometimes God is way more concerned about sins of omission, things that we should have done. So principle number two is goodness is not the absence of badness. Goodness is not the absence of badness. You can do, me and you can do nothing wrong and still do nothing right. Sometimes all we do is just run away from sin. And again, I'm not saying that there's not sin that we don't need to run away from. But sometimes if that's, if that's all we do is just run away from sin, it's almost like we're half Christian. As a Christ follower, I'm called to do way more than just run away from sin. I'm really called to chase lines. And this is a, it's a change of worldview. It's a change of my, my mindset. And the result is this. When you and me don't have the guts to step out in faith and chase lions, then God is robbed of the glory that is His. When we don't have the faith to jump in and, 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 and leap out on faith, we're robbing God of the glory that, that rightfully belongs to Him. He deserves the glory. It's His. And when we step out and we act based on that belief and trust, not stupid things, when we step out on belief and trust and we commit prayerfully to it, it brings honor and glory and praise to God. And I think, I think He just smiles. I think He looks down and He just smiles. When one of your kids believes you, and I know that doesn't happen often from about 12 or 13 to about 18 or 19, but praise the Lord, it, it, it will happen. So when one of them they do believe something that you said, something that you encouraged them to do, and it works out just tremendously for them. As a parent, it's such a cool thing. And I'm not talking about big, huge things. I'm talking about jumping off the diving board or riding a bicycle, but they trusted you and they believed you. And I think back, i tell you a, a, a short story. Um, my oldest son, Zach, when he was nine, nine years old, he was a little bitty thing. 
he was nine years old, and he got we played little league, was playing little league baseball, and he got drafted up to play a ball when he was nine, and he had just turned nine. A ball is nine years old to twelve years old, and there can be a pretty big difference between a a, a, a kind of a small kid who just turned nine versus a twelve year old who's a big kid who's just short of thirteen. So he gets drafted up, and Susan looked at me and said, "What have you allowed to happen?" Nonetheless, so he gets drafted. He's is it, it, we're about. Five weeks probably into the into the uh, into practice, we have the first game of the season. We're playing a team, the Mets. We were the Orioles. We're playing the Mets. <clears throat> the Mets had a team that that they're, I played in high school with their the, the guy that coached them, and they drafted this team. All these kids they drafted when they were nine for this season. They were almost almost every one of them were twelve years old. So, and his son was pitching. His son was about six one had facial hair, just short of 13. He was about 175 pounds. Zach was about four feet tall, scrappy and fast, but about four feet tall, about 60 pounds. First at bat, first game of the season in A ball. Um, and Zach was a little, he was probably a little nervous. He definitely was a little nervous. You know, I'm pushing him up to the plate. And, and Cody Milner was the kid's name that was pitching through gas. First pitch, First game, first at bat, hit Zach square in the middle of the back. I mean, it just stopped like a brick wall. And I looked at Susan, and I'm like, he's either going to never play again or he's going to realize this is not the end of the world. Well, he goes on to first base, and after the game, I said, how, how was it, whatever. He said, it was, he said it hurt pretty bad. He pulled his shirt up, and there was a big, huge welt in the middle of his back. <clears throat> so fast forward about... Eight weeks or so later, 20 games later, um, we're in third or fourth place. The Mets are in first place, and they're 20-0, and 0, um, undefeated. It's the last game of the season. At Pioneer Little League, the last game of the season, the last A-ball game of the season, when it's over, all the trophies for all the kids are given out. So you have all the girls in softball, all the boys in T-ball, all the way up to A-ball, all the parents, and we were the last game of the season, and Goliath was, was playing us. And uh, there must have been five or 600 people literally watching that game, and we were really not that good. Cody's pitching again. Um, and we had a kid pitching on our team that was so skinny, if he turned sideways, he'd disappear. And, and, uh, and, and he threw slow. But I thought, we're going to throw him because he throws strikes. He throws slow, but it's going to be hard to hit him probably because he throws slow. First inning, zero to zero. Second inning, I think we may have scored a run, and they scored a run. It's one to one, and then it was two to one, and then it was three to two, and Three to three and four to three and five to five. And, and about this time, all these people that are watching this game are thinking, this is actually a, a real game. We go to the sixth inning, sixth inning, sixth innings in Little League. We go to the sixth, it's tied. The seventh, it's tied. The eighth, it's tied. The ninth, it's tied. The tenth, it's tied. There are throngs of people at this game. We get to the tenth inning and Zach comes up to the plate and Cody's pitching because Cody didn't start, they brought him in. Cody's pitching. Somehow or the other, Zach gets on on first, stole second, and the skinny kid that turns sideways and disappears is hidden. He hits a little dink down the right field line that just lands fair, and Zach scored, and we won that game. The whole place went absolutely bananas, but here's the deal. In the dugout, of in the Mets dugout, was a box. Two boxes, actually, with T-shirts that they had had printed that said 21-0, and 2001 Pioneer Little League Mets undefeated. So 
It's just this, and it all began with this, this little step of faith about eight or nine weeks prior to that. So I want you to consider this morning, maybe life is not supposed to be as safe or as civilized as we're led to believe. Maybe Christ was more dangerous and uncivilized than the image that's kind of come down through the centuries to us. Maybe God's raising up a generation of line line chasers. Maybe He wants you and me to trust Him and just jump in. Spiritual maturity in this sense is seeing and seizing the God-ordained opportunities that come across our path. It's reorienting our mind and thinking of every opportunity as God's gift to you. And what you do with it is your gift back to God. So, principle number three is something that I have become totally convinced of over the last ten years of my life. And I am convinced that our greatest regrets in life will be missed opportunities. Our greatest regrets in life will be missed opportunities. It's like, it's actually like a stewardship issue. We need to be good stewards of our money. We need to be good stewards of our resources. We need to be good stewards of our time, but we also need to be good stewards of our opportunities. When you come face to face with a lion, are you going to run like a scaredy cat or are you going to grab the lion by the mane? Benaiah grabbed opportunity by the mane and he ended up being King David's chief bodyguard, but he also climbed the ladder and he ended up being the commander of Israel's entire army. So there's a number of of skills and things that I want to help us recognize uh, and develop a little bit maybe this morning that are going to help you and me chase the biggest, scariest lines in our lives. And I don't know what the Vegas odds would have been on all this stuff that happened in 2 Samuel 23, but I bet Benaiah wasn't favored. It had to be 2 to 1 against the Moabite warriors. It had to be probably 7 or 8 to 1 against a 7 foot tall uh, 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 Egyptian giant warrior man. And there's no telling what the odds are against a 500-pound lion. But Benaiah did what lion chasers do. He defied the odds. He didn't focus on disadvantages. He didn't whine and make excuses. He didn't try to avoid situations where the odds were against him. You ever do that? You avoid the situations where the odds are sort of against you. Lion chasers, they know that God is bigger and more powerful than any problem that they will ever face. And sometimes God does not intervene until something is humanly impossible. I think he loves impossible odds. Sometimes he just slides in right at the nick of time. So skill number one is to recognize and trust that God is an odds defier. Maybe it's because he gets to show us uh, his power. Maybe it's his omnipotence. Maybe it's because that. Maybe it's because when there is no way that we can possibly take the credit, then he gets all the power, excuse me, all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. I honestly don't know, but I know in this Bible, in this book, there is example after example after example. And in your history books, there's examples. Look at Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7 is an account of Gideon's army. Gideon's army had 32,000 men. They were getting ready to go at it with the Midianites. The Midianites had more than 32,000 men. 
God tells Gideon, you got too many. And you think, he's, or, too many? You meant to say too few. God tells him that he has too many men. God tells him to get rid of the scaredy cats. He whittles down two-thirds of Gideon's army. So now uh, he's down to about 10,000 men. And the odds makers change the point spread. And then the Lord says, again, you got too many men. God whittles his army down again, and now he's down to 300 men. It's got to be a million to one odds now. And then to top it off, God tells him, I want you to go attack with trumpets and jars. And Midian's probably saying, what in the world, God, are you talking about? But Israel wins. And here's what Judges chapter 7, verse 2 said at the beginning of this. He said, this is God talking to Gideon. He said, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. And you got to think that had Midian, had the Midianites been defeated by Gideon's army, and Gideon's army of 32,000 men, they probably would have thanked God a little bit. They probably would have circled up and they would be holding hands and they'd bow their heads and they'd pray and they'd just kind of say, thank you God for leading us into battle and letting us win. But they did it. They whooped them with 300 men. So God gets 10,000% of the credit. He does not want partial credit. Our God does not want partial credit. He deserves, wants, and gets all of it. And it happens way too, way too often that, that we want somehow, we want God to make our odds better. We want God to stack everything in our favor. And maybe God wants to do the opposite. Maybe God wants to stack the odds way against us so we get to experience a miracle. I have seen that in my life over and over and over again. Maybe a major component of faith is trusting God no matter what the odds are. Maybe trust, maybe a major component of faith is trusting Him when the, when the odds are ridiculous. There's no, nothing humanly possible that would allow you to do whatever it is. A.W. Tozer, who's, a, who's an author, he wrote a book 60-ish years ago called The Knowledge of the Holy. Here's what he said in that book. He said, the most important thing that, that, uh, about me and you that comes to, the most important thing is what comes to mind when we think about God. And so here's the words that he used. He says, the, the, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. It's not just nature and nurture. More importantly, it is it is Godture. And that's probably not a word, but I'm saying that we're a byproduct of our God picture. Our internal view of God, it's, it's, we view everything through that. How we view God, we, through, we view everything through that lens. And our biggest problems, my biggest problems, they can often, maybe most of the time, they can be traced back to an inadequate understanding or even a low view of who God is. In other words, our problems seem really, really big because our God is really, really small. In fact, maybe we sometimes reduce God to the size of our biggest problem in the moment. And a low view and a high view of God is one of the main differences between scaredy cats and lion chasers. 
Scaredy cats are filled with fear because their God is so small. And a lion chaser knows that their best thought, their best thought about God on the very best day falls infinitely short of the reality of who He is. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. Isaiah penned this, and it's so good. Here's what it says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As of now, the furthest galaxy that's been found by astronomers is 12.3 billion light years away. And that's an incomprehensible distance. And God says in that passage that His thoughts and our thoughts are further apart than that. So here's, here's the deal. We underestimate His awesomeness by more than 12.3 billion light years. you got to let God out of the box, the little box that you've had Him in for years, and try to right-size Him. Even as we sit here, try to right-size Him. And as you begin to do that, as you begin to at least try to comprehend who He is, you're going to grow. And one of the reasons that you're going to grow is because He's going to grow. So here's another principle that's in your worship guide. The bigger God gets, the smaller our lines will become. The bigger God gets, the smaller our lines will become. This book says that God had me and you in mind before He laid the foundations of the world. He planned for every contingency that you and I would ever encounter before the beginning of time. And that is almost impossible to comprehend, but it's one of the most mind-boggling truths in the Scripture. In 1997, 21 years ago, a team of engineers from IBM, um, they built a computer that outmaneuvered uh, the chess grandmaster at the time was Gary Kasparov from, Germ- uh, from uh, Russia. And this computer they, they, uh, they uh, invented calculated 200 million chess moves per second. I struggle with where I'm going to lunch. And so I can't imagine processing 200 million options per second, but here's what I know. 200 million contingencies per second is laughable compared to the God who took every single contingency into consideration for every single human that would ever live before a nanosecond ticked off the world's clock. If you think of your life a little bit like a game of chess, and you've got no idea what your next move should be, but God's already gotten the next 900 billion planned out. Some of them may not make sense to me and you, but that's because we, 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 we can't see it all. So another simple truth, and this is kind of a, a, a tongue twister, but God wants you to get where God wants you to go more than you want to get where God wants you to go. Don't ever forget that. God wants you to get where God wants you to go more even than you want to get where He wants you to go. And it's if we stay close to Him, if we cling to Him, if we lean on Him, He's got massive shoulders. We just have to, to lean on Him. Paul wrote in, in uh, his letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus 
to do good works, which God what? What's that that word over there? Prepared. That God prepared in advance for us to do. And you know what two verses right before this say? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works. Why is it not by works? If it's by works, who gets to boast? If you did it, who gets the credit? And Paul says that. It is not by works so that no one can boast. And he goes on, verse 10, For we are God's handiwork, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It is so not about me and you and what we do. It is all about Him. It is His grace that saves seemingly unsavable, unlovable people like me and you. And that word in verse 10, prepared, it comes from this ancient custom of sending servants ahead of the king to secure safe passage. God went ahead of us. He led us. He went ahead of us to secure our future. But, and and yeah, there is a but, sometimes his plan involves us coming face to face with a lion in a pit on a snowy day. But there's another but, praise the Lord. When you find yourself in the pit, when you find yourself in those challenging circumstances, you have got to trust and know that He is ordering your footsteps. You've got to know that you can have a sense of destiny because you know that God has processed every single contingency in your life and He always always has your best interests in mind. Jeff, a couple weeks ago, talked about Romans 8.28. God works all things for the good. It doesn't stop there, though. God works all things for the good for those who love Him. That promise, and it is a promise to believers. So, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard of, of a thing called the butterfly effect? And it, I don't, Somebody told me the other day it's a movie. I'm not talking about the movie. I'm talking about the butterfly effect. And it is, I'm going to give you the technical scientific definition. I'm going to give you a definition that we can kind of understand. The technical science definition of the butterfly effect is the sensitive dependence on initial conditions in which a small change in one state of a deterministic nonlinear system can result in large differences in a later state. In normal people talk, it's the idea that, that everything we change changes everything. A minor event like a butterfly flapping its wings can conceivably alter wind currents and change weather 15,000 miles away. Hold on to that thought for a second. Most God-ordained dreams die because we're not willing to do something that seems illogical. Not stupid. I'm not saying, don't walk out here and say, he told me to go do a bunch of stupid stuff. I'm say, That's not what I'm saying at all. Sometimes it is a calculated risk that has us giving up something good that ends up turning into something great. Sometimes it's a little act of courage that changes the course of history. Somebody takes a risk. Somebody takes a stand. They make a courageous decision, a courageous sacrifice, and it has a domino effect. It has a butterfly effect. Esther. Esther said, though it is against the law, I will go and see the king. If I must die, I must die. A Jewish cupbearer named Nehemiah said, if it please the king and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Three Jewish friends refused to bow down to an idol in Daniel chapter 3. And they said to the king, 
We don't need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into a blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. And two disciples in the face of Roman authority saying, y'all better shut up about this Jesus guy. John and Peter said, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And now watch what happened. The Jewish people were saved because of Esther's decision. Nehemiah rebuilt the wall in Jerusalem. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 were promoted to high positions of power. And the entire ancient world heard the gospel because Peter and John wouldn't, couldn't and wouldn't be quiet. For Benaiah, that one small step in the direction of the line, it proved to be the catalyst for the butterfly effect on his life. For Esther, for Nehemiah, for Shadrach, for Meshach, for Abednego, for Peter and John, their decisions may have seemed illogical. Their decisions may have seemed illogical. They may have been counterintuitive, and surely they were scary. And I have no idea what God, what, what line God has called you to chase today. I don't have the vaguest idea. It may mean answering a call into full-time vocational ministry. It may mean teaching in an inner-city school. It, it, it may mean starting a business or becoming a foster parent. It may mean uh, applying to law school or medical school or some other graduate school or program. It may mean resigning a position. Maybe it's ending a relationship or starting a new relationship. But you can take this to the bank. None of those decisions are risk-free. None of them are. All of those decisions take faith. So another point in your worship guide, obedience. We're called to be obedient. Obedience is a willingness to do whatever, whenever, and wherever God calls us. Whatever, whenever, and wherever He calls us. And a lot of times, most of the time, it doesn't mean going halfway around the world. Most of the time, it's just across the room or on the other end of the telephone. Faith is a risky business. And I want to tell you, and you've heard this story I'm, I'm plenty of times, but you may see it in a little different light today. I want to tell you about a, a big faith, risk-taking line chaser. You imagine this picture on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are rowing across. It's dark. The wind is blowing. There's fog all over the place. Um, and Jesus comes walking out on the water to them. And Scripture says that they thought he was a ghost. They're screaming like little babies in the boat. But once they stopped acting like scaredy cats, and probably Jesus stopped laughing at them, he said, don't be afraid. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come on. And Peter took one small step out of that boat and one giant line-chasing leap towards Jesus, and he walked on the water. And it just would have been so much cooler if, if, it, if, that, if it ended there. But, but it, I didn't write the Bible, so it didn't end there. Matthew 14.30 says, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sing, cried out, Lord, save me. When he saw the wind, and if he saw the wind and he saw the waves, what wasn't he looking at? He took his eyes off of Jesus, and he started to sink, says, Lord, save me. It is almost inevitable when you and I step out on faith, we always second-guess ourselves. We decide to step out of the boat and change careers, end a relationship, go on a mission trip, and you have second thoughts. And the second thoughts are this. Did God really tell me to get out of the boat? Every sin that befalls man begins with those words. Did God really say? That's what, they, that's what the serpent said in the garden. Did God really say? We all do it. And it's that deceiver pecking away at us, planting those little seeds of doubt in in our ears, and you start sinking spiritually because you're focusing on the wind and the waves and the fog, and you're not focusing 
on Jesus, I think we second guess ourselves sometimes because we demand, put me in the front of the line on this, we demand absolute certainty before we step out on faith. And that's just probably not going to happen. Andy Stanley said you're probably never going to be more than 80% sure. And yet we still want 100% money back guarantee. The problem is that removes faith from the equation. There is no such thing as risk-free faith. This narrative about uh, Jesus walking out, walking on the water and Peter, Peter gets a bum rap. I, three reasons I think Peter gets a bum rap. Yeah, he denied Jesus three times. Read the Gospels. He denied Jesus three times. But he was the only one that got close enough to Jesus to get caught. Number one. Number two, he flipped out in the garden and cut the guard's ear off the night that Jesus was arrested. But he was the only one that jumped up and did something about what was going on. And number three, yeah, he was the one that sank in the sea or began to sink in the Sea of Galilee, but he was the only one of them that got out of the boat. And it's easy to criticize while you're watching from the boat. There's two kinds of people out there. Some folks get out of the boat and some sit in it and criticize. Some get a numb hind end sitting on the couch watching football and criticizing, and some people strap on a helmet and get on the field. Some folks chase lines and some run like scaredy cats. And I think sinking, even beginning to sink, is better than sitting. God takes those perceived failures and He does something with them. And our regrets, our greatest regrets, are going to be the God-ordained risks that we did not take. Not stupid risks, the God-ordained risks. When you come to the end of the line, I promise you, you won't regret the failures. You won't regret sinking a little bit. But I guarantee you that you will regret sitting. And I read one time this. I'm going to end with this. And I read this one time. And, and I don't know where I read it, so I'm going to claim that it came, it's original and it came from me. So I'm, let me change what I said. I always say this. This is what I'm fixing to tell you. <laughs> Hell begins the day that God grants you the vision to see all that you could have done, should have done, and would have done, but didn't. Hell begins the day that God grants me and you the vision to see everything that could have done, should have done, and would have done, but we didn't. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we love You today. Lord, we, we pray that You will just put a little bit of a lion chaser in us. Lord, we pray that, that even just that we'll have the discernment enough to, to recognize opportunities as they present themselves in front of us. Lord, we pray that, that we will that you'll give us a proper view of you, that, that we won't have a low view of you, that we'll have a, 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 a right, we'll right size you, we'll let you out of the box that you've just, uh, that you, that we've had you in for so many years. Lord, we pray that we will understand, at least on some level, that we'll understand who you are. And Lord, I know there's people in here today that are facing tough decisions. It may be health related. Lord, it may be job related. It may be school related or relationship related. And they're tough decisions. And so, Lord, I, my prayer is that they will get on their knees and that they will pray and they'll seek Your wisdom, that they'll talk to, to, to uh, fellow believers, that, <clears throat> that they'll seek godly wisdom that You have uh, put in front of them and, and just jump out uh, and chase a lion.
Lord, I pray uh, again for those families in Florida that you'll wrap your arms around them, that you'll comfort them, and that they will seek your face. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How about Ed Griffin Hagen, people? Was that amazing? Thank you, Ed, for sharing that with us. This is awesome. We are just almost ready to wrap things up. If you don't mind, stand with me. We want to uh, thank Ed again, and, uh, and we hope that whatever lion you're facing this week, you'll feel equipped and outfitted now to, uh, to chase it and not run from it. Uh, would like to say that what we, li- what we like to do at the close of our gathering is uh, receive an offering. So in just a moment, our band is going to lead us in one more song of worship. And while they do, uh, offering buckets will make their way up and down uh, the rows. And as, they, as that happens, you can feel free to place your offering in there. If you're a first-time guest, we just want you to be our guest. And we don't want this to be weird or awkward. If you, if you have one of those connection cards... Pop that in there as well, in the bucket. I'd like to invite our host teams to come forward. And uh, we'll pray in just a moment. Before I do, I would like to say thank you to the My Church family because many of us like to, at this time, worship God by giving this offering. And your generosity, the generosity of the My Church family is what allows us to, to reach a lot of people and to bless a lot of people in our city, in our country, really all over the world. So thank you for that. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on this offering and this closing time of worship. Lord, thank you for this day that we've had the chance to get in here and, and offer prayers and sing songs and hear an amazing story of, uh, of how you want to change the way we think about you and about the stuff that we're facing in our lives. So we ask you, Lord, make this experience that we've just had Make it matter for us in the week ahead. And we also ask for your blessing on this offering. And we ask you, Lord, use this. Use this funds. Use our resources. Use our stuff to make a forever kind of difference in the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen.